0: So, open up your Bibles if you have them here. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 11, verse 1, and uh, then I'm going to pray. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Would you join with me in praying? Father, this morning we come before your throne as your people and we ask for your help. Come, Holy Spirit, and empower your word. Awaken our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see Christ risen, glorified, and to be a people ever increasingly faithful to him. Lord God, would you help me as I preach this word? Would you open our ears and our minds to see you, to listen to you, and to grow to be more like you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, D.A. Carson in his book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, recounts the true story of a couple who were driving along when they spotted a new-looking Cadillac parked by the side of the road, hood up. The driver seemed perplexed, anxious, and agitated. And so this couple pulled over to help them. The man with his car at the side of the road was a businessman and he was very embarrassed because he explained he was running late for an important business meeting and knowing that his petrol was low, took a risk and had tried to rush to his meeting without stopping to refuel and had run out of fuel. Well, thankfully, the couple explained to him they had a jerry can in the back with a few litres of extra fuel spare. And so they took the fuel and put it in the man's car and told the man that there was a service station only a few kilometers down the road. And delighted and thankful for their help, he sped off. The couple continued on their way until roughly 15 kilometers down the road later, they saw the same car pulled over with the hood up and the same driver looking this time even more anxious and agitated. And you guessed it, the same businessman, in such a hurry to get to his meeting, decided to skip the service station and try to make it on the petrol they had lent him and had run out again. Well, in summarizing this story, D.A. Carson says the following, it is hard to believe anyone would be so stupid until we remember that that is exactly how many of us go about the business of Christian living. We are so busy pressing on to the next item on the agenda that we choose not to pause for fuel. Ouch. Doesn't that ring true for so many of us? Simply not pausing for something as simple as refueling. For so many of us, we do not see prayer as the highest of all priorities in life. Accessing the fuel that we need to keep going. Communing with the living God. It's kind of an optional extra for us if we get around to it. Which, of course, we rarely do. Here's a question for us. Here's a difficult question for us. What's your honest initial reaction to hearing that we have another prayer meeting at church. Is it excitement for the privilege of gathering with the saints? The opportunity to ascend before the throne and encounter the living God? Or is it excitement for a night off? Because I don't go to those. Or maybe dread because you do go, but not willingly You kind of get dragged along fearing what people might think if you don't show. Why do we do this? Well, the answer is, I believe we often struggle to believe that prayer does anything at all. It feels like talking into the air. It feels like nothing happens. I mean, maybe God isn't interested. I think sometimes we struggle to pray because of bad theology. We believe God is sovereign. Therefore, everything must be predetermined, right? So what's even the point of praying? And I think for many of us here in in this neighborhood, intuitively, we, we believe that God helps those who help themselves. And so we back ourselves to just get on with it. You know, Paul Miller in his book of praying life says this, he says, if you are not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money and talent are all you need in life. It's so true, isn't it? You know, last week we witnessed Jesus teaching his disciples what they should pray, letting them into his very heart and the different things that should be on their heart, how they should be praying to the vertical, to their father, for him to be honored and his kingdom to come on earth, to the horizontal for for provision for the community every day for forgiveness and protection and to honor him. Well, this week Jesus, the great master of prayer, wants to help his disciples not simply with the content of their prayers, but to come to him in prayer. To know that their prayers are not in vain, but always heard. To know that God intends to answer, to lavish them with good. You know, this week in our passage, Jesus doesn't wish to merely shape the desires that ought to inform our prayers. He wants to encourage us to pray. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I have a simple title for this sermon. It is, Teach Us to Pray, Part 2 A call to prayer. Three points for us this morning, but one hope. And that's that as a church, we would answer the Lord's call to come to him in prayer. That's what this passage is all about. That's my heart for us this morning as a church. So let's dive into point number one this morning. A call to boldly persevere in prayer. You know, if you missed last week... Um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen, um, if you can. I'm so thankful my voice survived, so the back end might be a little bit a little bit rough and, uh, and rustic. But we saw last week that, that Luke writes more than simple, just a simple biography of Jesus' life. The Gospels are discipleship manuals. They're about how to follow Jesus. And Jesus is not just someone who teaches about prayer in theory. He was a man who was deeply committed to praying. Because the essence of God in the Bible is a loving relationship, a father who loves his son by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is in constant conversation with his father. And we see this throughout the gospel. After his baptism, he's praying. Before he chooses the twelve, he's praying. Before Peter confesses him as the Christ, he's praying. He's frequently withdrawing to quiet places to pray. Before the Mount of Transfiguration, he's praying. praying. And Jesus is letting his disciples into his very prayer life here. This is the very heartbeat of God himself, God the Son himself. And just as last week it was the content of his prayers, the things he asked the Father to do, this week he wants to see what motivates his prayers and the call of these disciples to a life of prayer. And Jesus does this by giving the disciples two short parables. Read with me the first one again in verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me, in bed. I cannot give, get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You see, in this first parable, a man is caught out when a friend arrives from a long journey in the middle of the night. And this wouldn't be an uncommon thing uh, in Jesus' days. They're living in a hot climate. And so traveling in the evening to avoid the heat of the day would be a common practice. But when the man in this parable's guest arrives, he realizes he hasn't got food at all to serve him. And I guess reading with our culture in mind, you might think, well, what's the big deal? No big issue, right? Just drop into Maccas, 7-Eleven, grab something from the house or from after hours. But in first century Palestine, food wasn't as readily available. There may or may not have been shops in this village. And if they were, they would be closed. And this was before refrigeration. So people would bake to meet the very day's needs and, and it would be less likely to have any spare bread. More in our culture, if, if someone arrived unexpected in the middle of the night, um, well, at least, I'm giving you somewhere to sleep, is what you might be tempted to think. Uh, no big deal if I have nothing in the house, that's on you. Next time, don't rock up unannounced at, at midnight at 12 a.m. But in many cultures, even to this day, it was incredibly important to be able to extend hospitality to a guest, especially in this case, a guest who is a friend. You know, I saw this living in Indonesia. People with incredibly little would serve you lavish meals, uh, spending nearly everything they have uh, because of the importance of honoring other people, caring for them, caring for a guest. And so to fail to have something to offer for a visiting guest would be something very, very shameful. And so the host of the unexpected guest faces a choice between two embarrassing options. Option number one, endure the shame of having nothing to provide for his guest. Or, option number two, endure the shame of waking up a friend in the middle of the night. This is the additional issue. Waking up a friend living close by would not be like me, you know, rocking up at the loongies and and knocking on his window and, you know, just waking up Andrew and possibly Cap, not the kids, and they could just flick on the lights and grab something from the cupboard and two minutes later he's back in bed, no big deal, right? Well, in the first century, homes were very different. Usually a home was just one room. Uh, likely a, a raised platform at the back end of this one room where the whole family would sleep on mats on the floor. Often, probably on the front side of this one room, on the actual ground, uh, there'd be livestock and cattle. And so... Uh, the doors as well at night would be bolted shut. So this man would likely have to wake his entire household and possibly livestock as well. He would have to not flick on a light switch, but light a lamp and scramble around the family to find some bread. Scramble past the livestock, unlock the doors. Now, when we think of doors, not just a simple key lock, this would be likely rings of iron attached to wooden doors with a big bolt across it, so maybe a piece of timber threaded through uh, pull out the bar through the iron bolts in the door, very noisy to unlock, and likely wake up anyone who hadn't yet been disturbed by his search for bread. Then, after having opened the doors and giving the bread, resettle the children, possibly the livestock as well, and head back to bed. But this is exactly what he does. The importance of extending hospitality to his guest looms larger, and so he goes to the, to the house of his friend. Bang, 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 bang. Friend, wake up. I need three loaves of bread from you. I've got nothing to serve my guest who's just arrived. Jesus says the friend will respond, will respond from within. Leave me alone. The door is locked. The kids are in bed with me. I can't help you. Go away. But this man is determined to provide for his guests, so he keeps bang, bang, banging on the door and calling out, hey, mate, come on. Get up. I need your help. You can almost see the friend's neighbor neighbors start to light lamps around them, wondering what this commotion is all about. And Jesus explains the parable. He says this in verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. This word translated here as impudence in your Bible in Greek is an idea. It's, it's difficult to translate. It's kind of a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. It's a carelessness about the good opinion of others. It's a combination of both boldness and shamelessness at the same time. And think about this. Jesus is saying not even friendship is enough to make this guy get out of bed and help his friend. But it's because his friend is so incredibly bold and shameless that he does. Ignoring the embarrassment of publicly calling on the charity of his friend the embarrassment of waking his whole household and potentially his neighbors as well, he boldly asks for help. And when his friend tries to turn him away, he isn't put off. He shamelessly perseveres and keeps knocking and calling out until he helps him. Now, it's important to note that Jesus here is not comparing God to an irritated neighbor. He's not suggesting that God is reluctant to help and needs to be hassled into compliance. This is a how-much-more argument. See, Jesus begins in verse 5 saying, which of you? His point is, if this is how a friend would treat your bold requests, how much more will your Father in heaven? Darrell Bock, in his commentary, writes the following. He says, this petitioner has gall. He is willing to go to great lengths and to suffer great rebuke to get the bread so that he could be a good host. It takes nerve to wake up a neighbor and possibly his whole family in the middle of the night. The host drives his neighbor to a desperate response. The argument here is a lesser to greater argument. If a person responds this way, surely a gracious God will respond to those who have the nerve to make their requests. See, the Lord Jesus is inviting us to come to our gracious Father with boldness, knowing he will hear and answer us. Here's a question for us this morning, church. Do you realize that God the Son is inviting you to pray with similar boldness? Now, I want to clarify, this doesn't mean to pray disrespectfully or or that, as I said before, that God can be manipulated. No, that's not what it means. But he does invite us to boldly plead with him. You know, older Christian writers in the past often referred to this kind of prayer as arguing with God. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be argumentative, and it doesn't mean that we should assume that our wisdom is best. Rather, this idea of arguing with God means that we should boldly lay out the reasons why we think that what we are asking for best aligns with God's revealed will in the world. You know, I think there's a tendency in our Western culture to be, not to be emotionally honest in our prayers... You know, we think that a person who complains or pours out their heart is kind of a weakling, a weak character, a whinger. And there's a sense that our prayers, if we're going to pray them, should be neat and tidy. We should kind of have this kind of like stiff upper lip when we pray to God. But boldness in prayer involves laying out our hearts before the King of Glory and pleading with Him to intervene. You know, rather than simply praying... If it's your will, would you save my friend? Praying something more like this. Lord, you say that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord and yet my friend still rejects you. Lord, you see the state of his marriage and the way he trusts in himself over you. Surely this does not bring you glory. If my heart is grieved by the way he constantly dismisses you, surely yours is grieved more. Surely you long to see this dishonor come to an end. Wouldn't it glorify your name to transform his heart, to lead him to repentance? Wouldn't many more people glorify you if you changed him to live for you and therefore to lay down his life for his wife? Wouldn't you be richly glorified and your name praised if people saw their marriage transformed by your grace? Doesn't this neighborhood with so few who call you Lord need more people to shine the light of your glory? Is this how we pray? Do we boldly ascend before the throne of grace and plead our case with our maker? And do we persevere until we receive an answer? Or are you, like me, in the habit of reciting lists, praying merely, if it be your will, in a kind of rote way, and quickly giving up when no answer seems to come? See, Jesus is out to encourage us this morning, church. He's calling us, he's calling you to pray with boldness towards your Father in heaven. If even an irritated neighbor would respond to bold perseverance, how much more will the gracious King of all answer? And just like the man who shamelessly pleads for help from his friend and perseveres until he gets an answer, the Lord Jesus calls us to boldly persevere before the throne of God. And that's point number one. A call to boldly persevere, but not just point number one, point number two, a call to grow closer to God. Have you ever met someone who truly knows God? You know, there's this genuine depth of love for God and it's so appealing. You you always seem to find yourself sharing too much and talking way too much because this person is just so focused on others that they just let you go and, and ask you more questions and you kind of like realize, oh my goodness, i will just be talking about me for like half an hour. They exude the fruit of the Holy Spirit, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. There's something so deeply attractive about being in their presence. And do you ever feel... Like that could never be you. That you'll always be just mediocre in your faith. Well, What Jesus says next is for you. It's a flat out invitation for you to grow closer to him. Read with me verse 9. He says this. And I tell you. Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find. Knock. Knock. And it will be open to you. For the one who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. You know, these two verses have been used and abused by many over thousands of years. Taken out of context, they can seem like, or seem to be offering a license to use prayer as a means of getting whatever you would like. All you need to do is ask, and you will receive whatever you like as long as you have enough faith, right? Or they could be used and abused by the skeptical to show why Jesus' promises are false and that prayer clearly doesn't work. I've asked for millions and I'm still broke. But Jesus is actually picking three words that summarize his teaching about going clo- close to him through prayer. And the first is simply an invitation from Jesus to pray. Ask, he says, and it will be given to you. And verse 10 For everyone who asks, receives. Feel the strength of what Jesus is saying. Not just ask and it might be given to you. Not just ask and it could be given to you, or usually will be given to you, or probably will be given to you, or even almost certainly will be given to you. But Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. I mean, how can we make sense of this? Well, Jesus has already explained to the disciples the sorts of things he wants them to ask for. We read them earlier in the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, says Jesus, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us every day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. See, Jesus is not calling us to treat God as a genie to help us hasten the coming of our personal kingdoms, but to see him glorified and lifted up in this world. Similarly, our prayers will be shaped by our desire to live lives pleasing to him. When we pray as he has asked for his name to be held in honor, for his kingdom to come and in our homes and our workplaces, Jesus says, it will be given to you. Everyone receives who asks. His question for us, what would it look like to really believe that the things we ask for will be given us as we follow Christ's example in prayer? What amazing power is available through prayer that to ask is to guarantee an answer from God most high. You know, it makes me think of Psalm 8 where the psalmist says, and what is man that you are mindful of us? You know, Jesus, uh, through the apostle John, says the following in 1 John 5, 14. And he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Isn't that precious? John says, you know, if we, if we ask in the same way Jesus instructs us, we know we already have the things we are asking for. The question I've been thinking about this week is, how would my prayer life be different if I truly believe that God has invested this kind of power in prayer? Well, it's not just an invitation to ask. The second word Jesus uses is, is seek. It's an invitation to pursue God and his will. He says in verse 9, Seek and you will find. And again in verse 10, And the one who seeks finds. You know, i always thought that Jesus was simply repeating the same thing three different ways. But Jesus actually clearly has something specific in mind when he says seek. He's been talking elsewhere using the same word seek on several occasions an example is uh, just a chapter later in the in the following chapter in luke chapter 12 verse 29 jesus says the following and do not seek what you are to eat and what are you are to drink nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them instead seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you see this is such wonderful news If you are sitting here today and genuinely desiring to be part of his kingdom, to be part of his rule and reign, to find his will for your life, Jesus says, you will find it. Maybe you're sitting here and you're new to Jesus and you want to know how to please God with your life. Maybe you're following Jesus, but unsure if you're on the right path. Am I living in a way pleasing to him? Am I on the right path? Jesus says, are you seeking? You will find my kingdom. You will find my rule. You will find my reign my will for you in life, you will find it. If you ask for his name to be hallowed, revered in your life, he will answer. If you ask for his kingdom to come upon you, he will grant it. See, Jesus is promising that anyone who genuinely seeks the kingdom of God, who desires the rule and reign of God, who wishes to pursue God and discover his will, they will find exactly what they are seeking. But secondly, secondly, not just, or thirdly, not just an invitation to seek, an invitation to pursue God in His word, word, uh, His will, but thirdly, it's an invitation to come into His presence. Knock, and it will be open to you," says Jesus in verse nine. See, Jesus is later teaching a great crowd about the kingdom of God, and He describes it like a great banquet with people from all over the globe coming to recline at the table. In Luke chapter thirteen, verse twenty-four, He says this to to the great crowd that's gathered. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. See, those who are not known by Jesus, the master of the house, who have not trusted in him and been changed by him, Are refused entry into this great banquet. It's a picture of the rich relationship people will enjoy with God in in His future kingdom. But in our passage, Jesus says to those that do trust in Him, the disciples, "Knock on the door, and it will be open for you." It's an invitation to come into the presence of God through prayer. Knock, Jesus says, and the door will be opened. Is this how we view prayer? As an opportunity to enter into his presence. Friends, do you realize that if you're trusting in Christ this moment. The very moment you begin to pray. Father. You are ushered before the throne of God himself. Who is attentively listening to your every word. The master opens the door and welcomes you into the banquet. And you recline speaking freely to your savior and king. That whatever is going on in your life. As you pray, you step into his presence and enjoy his protection, his company, his glory through prayer. Can I be honest with you, church, this morning? Often, this is not how I view prayer. It's not a most privileged way to go close to the Lord. It's not an opportunity to grow more in the likeness of Christ and enjoy his presence but simply another item on a busy day's list. Well, friend, if you're like me this morning, friends, let's grow together. Let's grow together to allow these truths to wash over us and motivate us to pray without ceasing. Let's see Jesus calling us to grow closer to him through prayer. And that's point number two, a call to grow closer to God through prayer, but not just point number two, also point number three, a call with a guaranteed answer. And Tim Keller points out that if God simply gave us whatever we asked for in prayer, many wise people would simply stop praying because so often we ask for things that are actually not in our best interests. Read with me verse 11 of our passage. It says the following, "'What father among you, if his son asks for a fish,' Well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? See, Jesus points out to his disciples that all men are actually consumed with self-love. We all are far too devoted to ourselves. And as a result, we are prone to abusing others. We're prone to evil. And despite the evil we are capable of, it does not overcome the love of a father for a child. See, earthly fathers, they do not normally give things to deliberately cause harm to their children. And Jesus' point is that if even selfish earthly fathers know how to give basic good gifts to their children, how much more does the God who is the purest of love? But notice what Jesus does not say or what Jesus says. It's not good gifts, but the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Doesn't that seem a little odd of a thing to say from Jesus? J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Since the Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things. We have life, light, hope, and heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love. God the Son's atoning blood and full communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Having this gift, we have grace and peace in the world that now is glory and honor in the world to come. Jesus is assuring his disciples of God's eagerness to pour out the Holy Spirit, is pointing them to God's willingness to freely give his greatest of all gifts to them. I think this line has a tendency to so throw us, because we often consider God's greatest gifts the things of this world, like health and wealth and honor. But God is saying the things of this world are a thimble compared to the ocean I want to give you. I want to give you my very self. Tim Keller says it this way, he says, when you struggle in prayer, you can come before God with the confidence that he's going to give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. He does care and he loves you boundlessly. See, God doesn't just give us the good gifts that we think are good gifts that we ask for. He gives us the best gifts every time. And I guess it kind of leaves me with a question. A lingering question. How can God do this to us? How can God treat us with such kindness? How can God give us such lavish gifts, even himself, when we're so naturally so self-obsessed? Well, the answer is, because there was one who prayed to his father and received the serpent's bite. There was one who asked and received the scorpion's sting. In Luke chapter 22, verse 41, it says, And he withdrew from them, that is Jesus, about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed to his Father and asked for mercy, but instead he received wrath. See, this was Jesus' great mission in life, to die a place-taking death, to take all our sins and failures upon himself. God's just sentence for our crimes delivered to Christ in our place. And God raised him from the dead such that anyone who trusts themselves to him can receive the Holy Spirit, to rest assured that the answer to our prayers will always be, my child, take from me my very best. The question I've been just reflecting on this week for myself is why am I, why, why are we so nervous about making big prayers? Like, God, I'll go anywhere. Like, God, I'll do anything you want me to do. Like, God, I will serve you in any way you please. Why do those prayers make us so fearful? I think the answer is we're praying to think we won't like what God will give us. And then, put another way, because we question whether he is good. Well, friends, may Christ's wonderful gift of his life put all questions of his goodness to rest and compel us to come to his feet in prayer. I want to close this message out with a, a story or a, an account uh, of the life of John Dixon. He's uh, kind of made that sound like he's dead. He's not dead. He's very alive. Um, uh, he's a really wonderful historian, uh, an Anglican minister, and an apologist. And he writes the following. It's an account of his coming to Christ. And he says the following. He says, I have just two spiritual memories of my pre-Christian days. The first is of the lovely elderly lady who lived up the road and who babysat me and my brothers when we were kids. Her name was Elsie. I remember she gave me a sticker when I was about nine, which read, Love Never Fails. I had no idea this was a quote from 1 Corinthians, but I stuck it on my bedhead, knowing it had something to do with Elsie's God. The words were strangely special to me as I gazed up at them each night. The other memory is of the Lord's Prayer. Somehow I knew it off my heart and used to recite it when in trouble, not infrequently. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on. I was perplexed, especially after becoming a Christian, as to how I had known a prayer Jesus taught when I had never been to church or Sunday school. The mystery was solved about 10 years later. I was back in my home suburb working as a trainee minister in the local Anglican church. This, of course, was the church the Elsie attended. We had talked plenty of times over the years, especially after I would become a Christian. But I would never thought to ask her about what she had taught me as a child. It was not until I mentioned in a sermon one morning, the mystery of my knowing the Lord's Prayer as a youngster, that she informed me, John, I taught you the Lord's Prayer when you were nine. Don't you remember? The stickers I remembered, learning the Lord's Prayer, I did not. It turns out, Elsie, a widow, had been praying for my mum, my brothers, and me, ever since my father died when I was nine. Regularly and earnestly, she had asked the Lord to bring those Dixons into his kingdom. Humanly speaking, she had little reason to expect that any of us would embrace Christ. Ours was a loving family, but one devoid of Christian faith. Elsie prayed anyway. Elsie explained to me when I became a Christian at 15, she just said, Okay, Lord, that's the first. Please bring them all to yourself. Two years later, my brother Jamie came to believe in Christ, and now is training for full-time ministry. Again, Elsie just said, Okay, Lord. That's the second. I haven't seen Elsie for some years, but the last time I spoke with her, she assured me she was still praying for us all. Friends, would we answer the Lord's call to come to him in prayer? Would you pray with me? Lord God, Father in heaven, as your people, we are humbled by your word this morning. Who are we that you are mindful of us? And yet by your grace, you have called us to the greatest of privileges, to be seated at your table, to dine and recline with you, and to speak freely with you as children to a father. Look, well, God, would you forgive us for how often we treat what is a privilege as something of an undesired duty Lord, would you help us in our weakness would you grow us in a heart to see we are always welcome at your table that you love to speak with us and you delight to answer our prayers Lord would you make us a praying people and through our prayers would many many more people come to treasure you as their king Praise in Jesus' name.